it is the shepherdess at harmony farms where we encourage you to think big start small and don't quit This episode of The Shepherdess Podcast is a live question and answers with Mr. Rory Groves, author of Durable Trades, and you can buy that book at shopshepherdess.com. The book outlines over 60 of the most historically durable trades. These are trades that have been labeled family-centered economies that have stood the test of time. I highly, highly recommend grabbing this book. Besides Salad Bar Beef, it's been one of the most fortifying books to me on my journey. But upcoming is a live question and answers with Mr. Rory Groves. It is the replay from the virtual Small Farmer Meetup, which is an event that I host on the fourth Thursday of every month. It's a live community event, and I would love to see you there. You can register for the next one at farmermeetup.com. Until then, guys. Please leave me a review in the App Store if you would. If you enjoy this podcast, it would help me out a lot. And as always, contact me at shepherdess at harmonyfarms.blog with any questions, comments, and inquiries. With over 30,000 occupations currently in existence, workers today face a bewildering array of careers from which to choose and upon which to center their lives. But there is more at stake than just a paycheck. Mr. Rory Groves, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Grace. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Goal of the virtual small farmer meetup is to provide a platform to share skills, resources, and encouragement. You've heard me say it before that I really believe centrality is fragility. And I believe that maybe 20 or 40 connections on a scale like this, where we can interact live and share skills one-on-one is far better than 20,000 Facebook followers, 20,000 Instagram followers. People are still filling the room. So Mr. Groves, can you give us a 1000 foot view of the Grovestead while people continue to come into the room? Yeah, sure. So we moved out here about nine years ago this summer. Our, um, at the time we had a, two-year-old or almost a two-year-old and a nine-day-old and so we moved here completely green not having one ounce of farming background other than my wife had some farmers in her family but we uh, live on a small so a 10-acre farm hobby farm I guess I would call it I'm not quite sure when a hobby becomes a working farm because it's certainly a lot more than a hobby to me but um, but yeah we um we just over the years we added um, little by little we added animals into now you know we're kind of doing a little bit of everything which is pretty typical with a lot of smaller farms they tend to be more diverse we're not specialized in any one particular area but we do raise as you mentioned uh, sheep we have a small herd of Katahdin sheep so those are a hair breed they shed their wool and we raise them for meat and then also just for breeding so we have good uh, registered uh, sheep lines that we're working to improve every year. We have some goats, some Nubian goats that we use for milk and, um, you know, hogs and of course the chickens and the bees and some of the other things that So you are diversified. Are you finding any one particular enterprise kind of pulling you? Like you really enjoy mm. the bees or you really enjoy the sheep or do you see yourself diversifying forever? Definitely keeping yeah, that's a good question because the push to, is to um, 
is just to, what would you say, um, um, kind of centralize or to focus in on one particular crop and to maximize that one crop. And um, so we will probably have a couple that will be our specialties, you know, that we'll put more of our emphasis on. But the diversification is really what brings a lot more of the holistic side of farming, a lot more of the integrated um, aspects of farming. And so we really enjoy having the variety. Um, I don't want to just specialize in one thing and then kind of scale that up and then have uh, basically a job on my hands that I um, that I uh, can't get away from. I want to have a lot of diversity. And diversity is also, you know, resilient. So it's it's good to have our hands in a lot of different areas. Right. All right. Welcoming the newcomers, Eli Mack. Thank you for being here. Candice. Candice, your mom, if you saw a spike in sales, Mr. Groves, I think Candice's mom gave out about 10 of your copies. Oh my goodness. Thank you. That's awesome. She's a fan. Great. Guys, I'm going to say it one more time. Please pardon the flies. I've got about a live audience (laughs) on site of about 76 flies right now. So pardon me. All right, Mr. Groves, thank you for being here. Your book, Durable Trades, it is family-centered economies that have stood the test of time. You are a software engineer turned small-scale farmer. I was incredibly inspired by your story because I am a digital marketer turned shepherdess. So it was encouraging to open the book and find shepherding as number one most durable trade. But for you, can you give your audience a little bit of a background as far as where you were coming from when you delved into this project of basically unearthing this list of durable trades? Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, I've been in computer technology. I have software, small software business that I've been running for 20 years, and I consulted before that. And... um, uh, this was really born out of a desire that I wanted to do something that was more enduring than what I had experienced in the high tech industry. Of course, you know, that comes with the territory, high technology, just these constant turnover, constantly um, technology is being replaced by newer and better technology. And the pace of the change over time um, began to wear on me, where things that I was working on, you know, for years in some cases would go obsolete within a matter of months. Um, and that's, that's, again, that just comes with the territory. I knew that that was the industry I was in, but after you work in an industry for 20 years, you kind of start to take stock and you think, is this what I want to continue doing for the next 20 years? Or is there something out there that I can build that will be more enduring? And I think the, for me, the, uh, uh, the real burning question was that I knew and I was aware of multi-generational family businesses that had gone on for centuries. I mean, not many of them, but there were out there. There were some examples out there. And certainly prior to our modern way of life, that was almost the norm is for the family business to pass from the grandparents to the children to the grandchildren. And, you know, you, you have some industries like the winemaking industry, there's 10 generations of family ownership. And it's just unheard of in our day and age where we go from one career to the next career about every five to seven years. So the, the concept of, is there something out there that is more durable, that is more lasting than what I've experienced in high technology 
But not only that, is there something that can transcend myself so that I can be building an inheritance for my children? Mm-hmm. Not just a financial inheritance of like money in the bank, but actually mm-hmm. passing on skills and knowledge and um, self-sufficiency in some cases so that my children have something to begin their life with that's not already obsolete by the time mm-hmm. I give it to them. Mm-hmm. That's good. Guys, if you could put in the comments, are you full-time farmers or do you also have an off-farm job? Leave it in the comments. I am curious to know what you do in addition to this farming. I am a digital marketer. For the past 10 years, I have been building websites and businesses on the internet. When I told my family I wanted to start raising livestock and when they saw me out in the middle of the pasture measuring it for uh, rotational grazing, they had thought I was going a little bit off the deep end. But really, honestly, this was a prayer of mine to have eyes to see an undervalued asset. And I didn't realize it when I became interested in agriculture and grassland agriculture specifically, I didn't realize that that maybe this was an answer to that prayer because I really do believe that trades like this and work like this is undervalued. And like you just said, Mr. Groves, there are, it's durable in a way that a lot of what we have today is not. So you are working small scale and I think that's really encouraging, something I wanna touch on. What are you working on as far as your acreage implementing all of this diversity that's going on? Well, um, for us, it's pretty slow going in, in, the, in the sense that when I moved out here nine years ago, I didn't want to create just another job, right? I didn't want, I mean, I wanted, I was interested in self-sufficiency and potentially producing a new farm-based business, but I didn't want to rush into it too soon and then end up with something that um, kind of took some of the joy out of, out of the experience. And so we've been pretty slow going and trying a lot of different things. So like I mentioned the animals that we had been raising before sheep and goats and honeybees and um, chickens, lots of chickens all over the place all the time. And um, just kind of getting, getting a feel for uh, what we like and didn't like. And so what, what right now there's, the main component actually is none of the above in terms of the animals in the sense that our, our real heart is to kind of build community around agriculture and around uh, agrarian concepts. And so we like to host events at our farm. So because it is kind of diverse, we have an opportunity to really bring people in and kind of get a broad exposure to a lot of different farm type animals and experiences. And that's Probably of all the things that we're interested in, it's that kind of um, avenue. So, so like we have a quarterly newsletter that we publish that just kind of details what we're learning about this transition to the country and, and different farming um, practices that we're trying and what's working and what's not. That's been going on for about four years, five years, maybe. And then multiple times a year, we'll have events that we host here on the property and all really centered around the same concept of how can we build more family-centered, uh, sustainable, and resilient families um, and, and vocations where, it's, where work is integrated with the family and with things that you believe in rather than just a place that you go or an office somewhere in the city and then you come back to your real life back at home. Right. Guys, drop your questions for Mr. Groves if you have them in the live chat. I'm going to just go down my list of questions here. So you have in this book, Durable Trades, which is available at shopshepherdist.com. You guys want to get your copy? You have a list of 61 durable trades. Can you tell us what went into compiling that list and what criteria you used to actually 
make sure a job made the list or didn't. Sure. So going back to what why I started looking at this is I was interested in finding a job that was going to be around for a while that was not going to just become obsolete with the next recession or invention. And at the same time, I really was desirous to do something with my family. So that's, that's kind of where the, the two main points, family centered economies, a family centered economy is kind of a broader term for a family business. A lot of times when people think about family businesses, they kind of have, there's some baggage attached to that. Um, maybe it's like brothers working together or, or, or what have you, but, but a family centered economy is really God's design for the family and that you're all working together towards a common purpose and not, it's the opposite of what we have in modern society where dad commutes to one job, mom commutes to another job. The kids are in a school somewhere and even the kids, the siblings are separated and they never Mm -hmm. see each other all day. So a family-centered economy is one that really seeks to integrate all the aspects of life together in a way that benefits the whole family. It builds relationships. It nurtures the land. It stewards the land. Um, there's, there's kind of a positive momentum forward. And so that whole concept of the family economy was one that was very typical for most of human history. And getting back to your question, the, the way I came up with these trades that are in the book is – I decided to kind of set a test and a limit, like what has been the most durable professions in history and the most family centered. And the way I did that is I looked at before the industrial revolution, what trades were around. So about 230 years ago was the founding of our country. 17, well, 1776 is the declaration, right? But the actual constitution was ratified in 1789. So right about the same time, was the kind of beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So from 1790 to roughly 1840, 1850, and then there's kind of waves of the Industrial Revolution. When that came on the scene, it radically changed the way that humans work and human societies function. And it happened gradually, but it was really looking back at it from like a sociological perspective. It was very rapid in the course of two or three generations. It was almost a total upheaval about the way we work and the way we think about work, the way we think about money. Yeah. And so, um, so what I did is I looked at all the professions that were existing before the Industrial Revolution and are still existing today as the main test of what is durable. Because if it has survived for that period of time, it means it's survived, um, obviously, revolutions, it's war, uh, inflation. Uh, currency devaluation, uh, pandemics, it survived changes of forms of government. So there's so many factors that if it has survived over that period of time, then it means it's going to be at least very durable if it doesn't continue to survive for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Now, touching in on the Industrial Revolution, why do you use that as a placeholder historically? I think, well, you you have to narrow it down to some aspect because I I didn't want to look at all world trades for all places at all times. So I chose, you know, America from 1790 to present because I figured that that was really where um, our perspective on work changed, our perspective on how societies function, the centralization into cities happened, the urbanization happened in the 19th century. So prior to that, you're really looking at a very different type of agrarian age. 
in which people had subsisted for thousands of years. So in other words, most of the trades that are in this book, if they existed prior to the Industrial Revolution, almost all of them existed thousands of years before that. So very long-term, very permanent and durable and sustainable and resilient to different kinds of shocks in the system. Whereas during the Industrial Revolution, what you saw, you know, I I mentioned in the book, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, there's over 30,000 occupations today. Well, back in 1790, 1800, there were maybe a total of about 70 occupations total. I mean, imagine, you know, starting out in life and you have basically a few dozen occupations to choose from. It was pretty comprehensible to take on those kind of um, challenges. Whereas today it's just bewildering. You don't know when you're picking a college career or a college major, which one is going to be around. And that has been the case since the industrial revolution where thousands of different jobs and careers have been created and then destroyed by the same revolution. Mm -hmm. So Anthony asks a good question. Have you found a common denominator? Is there a common denominator on the 61 trades listed in this book? Yeah. um, Yes, definitely. And, And I do try to summarize a lot of the themes that I found after doing the research. One of the common denominators are that, Trades catering to food, fiber, and shelter, so like the core human needs, are the most resilient over time. Uh, four of the top five, and I, when we list the trades, they're actually ranked by a scoring metric that we can get into that. But four of the top five trades and 12 of the top 20 are all related to food, fiber, and shelter. And at the bottom of the list, even though they're very durable and they've been long-lasting, only one in 20 of the bottom, uh, bottom of the list are related to food, fiber, and shelter. Mm. And so, um, you see in, in the, in the bottom of the list, you tend to see more entertainment oriented or athletic oriented or kind of services oriented professions. But at the top of it, it just continues to be providing those core basic yeah. needs that people need. And then the yeah. second consistent theme would be Uh, family-centeredness. So the family-centered trades, the ones that basically involved all ages um, that had a place for people, for a whole family to work together in, are also the most durable and the most resilient. So those ones also prioritize towards the top. Mm -hmm. Danielle asks, how do you market or connect with other families who are interested in a family-centered economy? Mm. Great question. Um, That's kind of part of the purpose of what we're doing right now is trying to connect people. Uh, If you don't mind, if I could share my website. Yeah. Yeah, On the Grovestead. Yeah. The Grovestead.com. We, this is really, this book really um, uh, represents what we feel called to do, which is connecting families who are trying to start family centered economies and trying to uh, support each other in that. And uh, in that way, small farmers are a huge, they play a huge role in that because they get it. They understand that you need to have resilient food systems and you need to have control over the supply chain in order to have resiliency. Um, But there are many other family-centered economies and, and, and home economies, people who are trying to build those that are very interested, but they don't know where to start because in a lot of ways, no one's for you in the sense that you have either the corporations that are interested in separating families to work in the corporations, or you have governments which are interested in keeping people dependent on the government. 
So mm -hmm. we write about a lot of this, these topics, and then we have events. In fact, we're going to be having an event in August, at the end of August, and it's purely about this topic. And we're, the whole goal of the event is trying to bring people together to meet one another and encourage one another in building their home economies. That's good. All right, so guys, thegrovestead.com. I'll make sure to follow up with this, um, with all the ways you can get in touch with Mr. Groves after this meetup. But that's where you can find his information there. Um, another question would be, it's just a little bit more of a farmer to farmer. What do you do for parasites in your sheep? Mm. Um, so that's kind of an interesting question right now. We had just been doing standard uh, preventative deworming, um, either drenches or um, there's like a feed supplement that we would give them. When I talked to our vet uh, last year about this topic, she had basically conveyed that she doesn't think that um, the medicines are going to be working for much longer. And over in Australia, um, they are, of course, where they raise a lot more sheep, they are, um, the medicines are failing now. They are using much stronger medicines and combinations of medicines than we are in the States right now. And she thinks that it's a matter of years, um, maybe 10 years before they're completely ineffective. Yeah. And so she has, our vet said she had completely stopped worming their animals and allowing them to basically naturally select yeah. um, and, uh, for parasite resistance. So that's the short answer is we don't do anything right now for parasite resistance other than rotational grazing, which is only makes sense. So I think it's if you're going to keep your animals uh, in the summertime, in the heat, you need to keep them moving on fresh pasture. You can't keep them on the yeah. same pasture. Uh, and then the breeds make a big difference. So we, mm -hmm. we have registered Katahdin breeds that, you know, that's one of the goals, at least the stated goals is, is high parasite resistance, but we're going to continue to selectively breed for that as well. Yeah. I was thinking that's it's something that I am combing through on my um, system as well. I'm moving them daily because we are hitting at place where I live. In my particular area, there's only one more chemical dewormer that has shown effectiveness on a large scale. Mm -hmm. And I do see it coming with respect to that's not going to be an option anymore. Um, I think it is. It's 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 a lot management as well. So the mm -hmm. rotational grazing really makes a difference. But yeah, we yeah, do still French as well. I think it, it is a more of a hassle to rotationally graze, and I believe I've, I've been fighting that fight in terms of trying to get fencing and, and patterns and, and so on. I just moved the sheep again today to a whole new area because we're actually we're having some of uh, a mini drought right now in southern Minnesota, yeah. depending on where you live, and our grass just isn't coming back. So I'm moving them to entirely different areas. But, um, you know, I think it is ultimately worth it it's it's a very practical step that you can take it's very natural if you think about where they yeah. would be in a natural environment they would have a lot more space than being confined to one little area so that that's yeah. a minimum i think that you should be doing is is rotationally grazing often so another question farmer to farmer john Dre in south africa asks in terms of regenerative agriculture and farming in that context how effective slash profitable are small ruminants like goats and sheep over cattle based on your opinion yeah i mean you know you can get you, well i mean you can just look at the usda standard if you want right. to look at the tables versus you're you're gonna always get more for grass-fed period and naturally raised and small scale raised 
you may not be able to get the volume is the difference. So when if I were to go and sell my sheep at auction or goats at auction, I'm going to get, you know, probably half the price of if I were to able to sell them direct to the buyer. So there's, there's an aspect of marketing there where you need to be building up relationships with potential buyers and that will dictate greatly the price and the profitability of what you're doing. So, so that's, that's kind of a in the hands of a farmer um, as much as, um, you know, what animal that you're breeding. Kevin Powell asks, where does mowing yards stack up in the list of 61 durable trades? Well, is it on I the mean, list? maybe you could swing gardener in that. Gardener is one of the um, trades. Yeah, so you maybe could, you could get if you maybe, you know, people who are into landscaping and taking care of uh, the guy I interviewed for Gardner. His name is Paul Gauchi. Highly recommend the documentary oh called Back to Eden film or just Back to Eden. If you, if you Google that, it's a free documentary. It features a man named Paul Gauchi up in the Olympic Peninsula of Washington. And he gardens with a deep mulch method, and it's fascinating what he has developed over the years. And it's, it's, it's the same system that we use here now, and it works fantastic. It works in all climates. But um, uh, he is a gardener, and he also is an arborist, and that's his main job. And he has always had steady work his entire life, anywhere he lives, anywhere he goes. People who are you know, skilled at pruning trees or taking care of landscapes they seem to always be in demand. So mm -hmm. that's maybe you could swing a uh, lawn mowing. I think you that, could. Sure. Yeah. Kevin, you are not a lawnmower. You are a gardener. I want you to relabel you yourself go. right now. And your trade, I think, is very durable. All right. Unless people get into regenerative agriculture and start grazing their yards, then you've got some Well, yep, there's that option too. All right. So Anthony asks you personally, what is the end goal for your farm? Is it only to support your family and in a homestead situation? Or do you think you will make a, an aggressive effort to expand it into an occupational situation? Mm. Um, our main goal is providing the needs for our own family. That's always the number one goal is self-sufficiency. We want to be more um, connected to the land. Uh, but also providing as much as we can from our own land first um, before. And I say that in a sense that before we're looking at the market value of the things that we're doing, because what I've tended to find is that as soon as you leave the farm and try to monetize the products of the farm, you're in this huge sea of competition. And it's very, very difficult to actually get an edge in that marketplace. So mm -hmm. our focus, and it can actually be kind of discouraging sometimes if you're just starting very small, yeah. but we get an incredible amount of value out of providing for our own family. And I mean, we have healthy food, we have stocked freezers, we have the enjoyment of raising the animals. Um, we know what goes into our food. You know, we, we have control over that supply chain. So if there's ever any disruptions at the grocery store, I mean, people right. are talking about the price of beef at the grocery store. Honestly, I don't even know what the price of beef at the grocery store is because we all yeah. we we raise all our own meat or we buy it from other farmers who are raising it just like we are. Right. So there's so many really valuable options, uh, or valuable um, value propositions if you're doing it for your own family first. And the second aspect is, you know, you do have to earn money and you have to pay bills. And so how do you get around that? For us, our focus is, like I had said, um, 
kind of agro-tourism, I think, is what you might broadly categorize it as. In, in, the, in the book, I have a uh, trade called tutor, which can be both a one-on-one or someone right. who's just involved with education. So we see the educational opportunity of all of this as being something that we would like to increase and try to bring more people and expose more people to this and kind of help other people get started in the same journey. That's a really good point in that that sort of the opportunity that springboarded off of your farming operation may create a unique income stream for you. It's not necessarily selling your meat, but you're providing an experience and an education from your farm. And that's generally a bit of an income. Emil asks a question, with all the visitors to your farm, is biosecurity a concern? Great question. I looked into that a lot when we did uh, farm camps. Um, Two summers ago was the last time we did it because of COVID last year. And then this year, we were just too uncertain about what what the rules were going to be. But we did a farm camp for a couple of weeks in the summer. And we had like high school age students come out and it was a great experience where they got to learn a lot about different farming aspects. We merged it. It was a faith-based camp. So we kind of merged it with Bible studies and different things like that. Like they did a whole lesson on John 10 and um, the good shepherd while they're sitting in the pasture and the sheep are grazing around them. So it was just really cool. Just a really fun integration. But in order to do that, um, I looked into the biosecurity Um, Because we're not selling um, for any kind of contract, like, for example, selling foods into um, a school district or to restaurants or anything like that, there's nothing, our garden is just for our own use. So there's nothing around the actual contamination thing that we were concerned about, but it was more for liability. And in the state of Minnesota, uh, there is for all agro-tourism activities, it is in the legislative law that farms are protected automatically. They're indemnified against um, uh, 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 risks due to, like unpredictable risks due to animals or farm machinery or things like that. So there's already a huge amount of coverage in the state of Minnesota. And it is that way, as I understand, in many states they already have codified codified that into law to protect farmers from um, random accidents that might happen if someone comes onto the property. So you could look into that. And then the other thing would be, you know, you could insure the property if you are looking into doing some kind of agro-tourism activities as well. Would that all fall under just a good insurance coverage overall for your business? Would that be covered? Yeah. I mean, it depends on what you're doing. Um, and, and you would need to talk to an agent. Based on my conversations, it was there's a lot that is covered under just a homeowner's policy and an umbrella policy. Um, if you're doing infrequent events a couple times a year, for example, and you're basically having large gatherings over, those kinds of things are um, generally covered and they're not an issue at all. You can get a event specific if you wanted to do some special event, you want to get event specific coverage. Yeah. But then if you're, if you're doing it as a corporation or as a business, you might need to get general liability insurance. Um, in the case of the liability waiver that I mentioned for the state of Minnesota, we have to have a sign that's posted as such on the property that's visible to people when they get there. So we would make, for example, the people who came to our farm camps, we had them sign a waiver, you know, as part of their uh, application process. And that takes care of all of that. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Ainsley asks, do you do multi-species grazing and have you found it to help with parasite control? 
Uh, we have not done, you know, like putting the chickens in after the yeah. sheep. We haven't done that. Um, not because I don't think it's a good idea. It sounds like a great idea. It's just that we have our chickens in mobile tractors that are pretty hard to move <laughs> carefully <laughs> without running over the chickens. And then the sheep are in electric netting fencing. So it's just kind of a hassle to move those two units at the same time. Right. So for us, we haven't done that. But I think it's a great idea, and if, if we ever had the animals grazing closer together, we probably would try that. Yeah. So, Ainsley, we have some beef steer, and what I do is I just stick them in the pasture right before the sheep go through. I don't know that I've noticed much of an improvement on that front. We're sort of running that Joel Salatin beef, chickens, sheep thing. Um, but I can't really say I've noticed a tremendous improvement. All right. John Dre in South Africa wants to know if you are open to interns from South Africa. <laughs> yeah, we do. So, yeah, that's another thing. You probably saw that on the website is we do internships in the summer and we'll do it's kind of been different every year. We've done different different uh, ways of um, hosting interns. Typically, it's only like a day or two days a week. So I don't know, you know, room and board might be an issue there. We're not hosting people that are living here on the property. Um, this year we're doing something a little bit different where we're having family internships. So we have a set number of work project days. In fact, in a couple of days, we're having a few families come over and it will be the whole family because we thought that might be kind of a more consistent with our um, uh, our goal of, of integrating families and work would be to bring the whole families out together who wanted to participate in that way. So that's what we're trying this year. But if you're interested in anything like an internship, you can just sign up on our, um, our email list at our website. And we would let you know as soon as there's anything like that that's opened up. That's good. Andres has a really good um, input here. He says, for insurance, we have an umbrella policy which covers lawsuits, judgments, and legal rep representations up to one million. And that's a good point Perfect. because I have researched insurance for um, like trade shows and so forth that I've done. And usually you can get in touch with an agent and just have like a, a general coverage for events and so forth. So that might be a, something to look into. All right. Rachel asks, other than concerns about paying for a biosecurity incident, what are your thoughts on people coming from another working farm, bringing in parasites and disease? Are you concerned about protecting your animals from problems brought in from other flocks? Um, well, so, I mean, the, if they're bringing their animals in, for example, like we're, we're going to be bringing in, you know, a new ram and billy goat this fall. Yeah. Typically what I'll do is I'll just quarantine them for a few days and make sure that they look uh, healthy and well. And, and that's just kind of basically been our policy up to this point. Um, I haven't had any issues with any animals from another farm bringing any kind of contamination. I think that if you do a little bit of vetting of the farms where you're bringing the animals from, you can find out what their farm management practices are. And if they're a smaller scale farm, um, they're probably not going to be as liable to have like these major um, uh, illnesses that you might see on something that you would pick up at an auction, maybe, where you don't know what the right. farm practices are. Yeah. I would definitely advise private, yeah, private sale. I think that question was like more mm -hmm. of people coming over. 
But if they're not bringing yeah, the I, truck, I don't think it's an actual issue. Actual people coming, I haven't had any kind of concerns or any, ever yeah. any issues with that. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I'm going to ask you about your scoring metrics with respect to durable trades. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about those and how you, um, well, what they are first and foremost, yeah. what are they? So I came up with, um, as I started to research this, I wanted to know not just what trades were were durable, but which ones were the most durable and the most family-centered. Because this was originally just a project for my own family. I just wanted to know, um, I wanted to know what the options were for someone like me who was kind of fed up with the high technology and everything going obsolete all the time. Yeah. So I wanted to know what are my options before I make a decision like this. And so that was kind of the impetus for that research. And what I did is I broke it up into five categories. So we have um, historical stability, uh, family centeredness, resiliency, which basically means is how, how quickly does a profession uh, recover from shocks, like shot, like a recession or a depression. Like these are always going to affect different cycles, yeah. but they don't know some professions, they go away and never come back. Um, income. So that's basically what does it pay? And then the last one is ease of entry, or you might phrase it as barriers to entry. So those are the five categories. And I scored each uh, trade according to those categories. And I have a whole list of questions that I ask about so let's say, for example, uh, family centeredness to get the score on family centeredness. I asked, is there opportunities for children and elderly people to work in the in the profession with you? Can it be a home based profession or does it have to be off site? Um, does it. Um, uh, what are some other examples of that? Um, does it leave tangible assets for future generations? You know, there are some professions that are their total. Um, information jobs, their knowledge work. And besides the money that you might sock away, there's not, not actually any hard assets to pass on. Whereas yeah. if you're involved in a profession like farming, I mean, you have land, you have right. equipment, you have bloodlines and the animals that you're raising. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's just one example, but there were in all, I think about 25 questions that I asked of each profession and they, mm -hmm. based on that, it came up with a composite score. And I put that at the end of every chapter in the book. So you can kind of see where each trade ranks against the other trades. All right, Rachel asked if I would show people how to enter the giveaway. I am giving away one copy of Durable Trades to anyone who takes a picture of the screen, hosts it to whatever social channel you have. Tagging at Harmony Farms, Dorpers, make sure to let me know you entered, and I will be choosing one of you to receive a copy of Durable Trades by Rory Groves. I want to speak, I want you to speak to something that kind of scared me, and it was obsolescence as a result of automation and robotics. What have you seen in recent years, and what are we facing in the next, maybe even couple decades? Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm coming out of, this is my world, is automation and artificial intelligence and technology and coding. And, um, you know, the, this is kind of the, the direction things are headed is this constant pursuit of centralization of efficiency. And computer algorithms are incredibly efficient, right? They work 24 hours a day. Yeah, so you're going right. to continue to see this drive to replace humans with automation. Yes. Um, I think there's a stat in the book that 47% of all knowledge worker professions are expected to become replaced by computer algorithms in the next, I don't know what it was, like 10 to 15 years. Um, 
So that was, and, and at the same time, we'll mention on, on a side note, 30%, and they're expected to see a 30% increase in the building trades over the same time period. So right. um, those kind of professions are very susceptible and artificial intelligence and um, algorithmic automation, those are real. That stuff is happening now. It's replaced already a lot of people in a lot of jobs. And we do see a, um, an increase in efficiency, which mean, which re- relates to an increase in material abundance. Right. But we haven't seen the kind of exponential growth in job replacement that we're about to see. In, over the mm-hmm. next 10 to 15 years, we're expecting a massive shift, 800 million workers around the world being displaced from the jobs they're currently employed at. Wow. And I think that you mentioned something that just because a job is high paying does not mean it's durable. Mm-hmm. Speak to that a little bit, because that really struck me. Yeah. So the thing is with automation is that they target the high paying jobs. I mean, that's where you're going to get the most return on your investment. If it's a low paying job, um, it's easier to hire a human to do it, especially if it's custom work. If you're replacing countertops in a house and every house is different, it's going to be really hard to get a robot to figure out how to do all those custom enhancements. And by the way, that's not a low paying job. Cabinetry is a very high paying job, but but there are a lot of professions, knowledge worker professions. I'm talking about doctors and lawyers um, and um, teachers, um, all kinds of knowledge work, computer programmers like myself. Those can be very high paying jobs, but those also become ripe for automation because there's, you're leveraging the most return on investment if you can automate that job. There's a lawyer that I interviewed for the book. And uh, the anecdote isn't in the book, but he mentioned that he uh, he was um, talking to another gentleman about how uh, his job in the legal profession and, and how custom it is and how um, how he feels secure in his job. And the gentleman who was a business owner told him, you don't get it. When we have a legal dispute, I send it over to the legal team in India <laughs> and the next morning, a dossier is prepared. It is on my computer with all of the, the U.S. law references and the response and the rebuttals and the court filings to file. I never have to contact a U.S. attorney for any of my legal needs anymore. Yeah. So there, there's you know just one example. And, of course, computer programming has seen the same kind of automation. We've seen a lot of the jobs get outsourced to India, to China. It's not as um, acute as how manufacturing has been outsourced because uh, there's still so much more demand for computer programming. So there's always going to be demand for someone stateside to do that kind of work. But trust me, and this is my world. I mean, as soon as they can outsource the core programming logic, they will. And as soon as machines can do it um, automatically, they will. Yeah. So Yoel asks a question and he says, how can we use artificial intelligence leveraging it as small farmers? Do you see a way to do that in, in good balance? You know, um, right now, most of the data intelligence or artificial intelligence is coming in the way of uh, managing databases of information. Um, so the best bet is going to be in terms of u- utilizing information for farming is going to be in the sense of um, deep database diving. Um, they call that um, 
you know, where uh, big data, where they're able to merge many, many multiple histories and databases together and glean some kind of new information. But you tend to employ that not as a small farmer, as a small anything. It tends to be in the massive types of industrial applications where a few percentage points of efficiency will give you a competitive edge. So in the sense of the small farmers, I mean, there, there is going to be a small but growing space for robotics in farming. Um, you know, you can think of like the Roomba vacuum cleaner that does some of the grunt work. Well, they have tractors now that have been at least um, in the university level employed to farm a parcel of land from beginning to end for the whole season. So you're going to see more things like drone tractors. Yeah. You already have GPS controlled tractors with the farmers in them for the most part. Um, so that kind of thing will continue to be there. But I think for the small scale farmer, you're going to want to look for value in different ways. You don't want to put yourself up against yes. the massive commercial farmers who are farming eight, 10,000 acres and utilizing some of this technology um, to gain a slight upper hand. You're going to want to be focusing on building relationships with your customers. That's mm-hmm. something that robots will never be able to do. Yeah, and I think that we need to utilize, I'm getting ready to drop a promo for my farm on the web workshop tomorrow. This is one of my paid workshops. We need to utilize opportunities in modern technology. You know, there's no need to stay, you know, stuck in the past if it's going to hurt us. But as far as artificial intelligence, I think mostly it's in the context of large scale operations. But as far as leveraging, I think leveraging for small farms would be getting them on the internet, getting using the internet to create local connections, kind of like what you're doing. All right, so this is kind of a, I wanted to make sure to get this question in before we closed out here. And guys, we are about 10 minutes off, so drop your Instagram handles or any email addresses you want to keep in touch with one another for the coming month. Um, But there's been... Greg says AI mower that does fence lines. That oh, I could, I think right. I could adopt that because that's what I end up Okay, doing. this so is I an like idea it. for anybody who might be a developer out there. I would like something that's a Roomba for the pasture that'll go under my electric fence and get yeah, brush encroachment. I would tolerate I that. that. Anyways, so in 2021, Bill Gates became the largest owner of U.S. farmland with a 269,000 acre portfolio. Should the centralization of farmland ownership be a matter of concerns for Americans or American small small farmers? Why or why not? So um, I did look at Bill a little bit. You know, I, I did spend the first part of my career working with Microsoft technology, so I'm familiar with Bill Gates. Um, I don't know in terms of the policy level, Uh, how much this impacts or if it's nothing more than just in place that where he's holding his money because he's an incredibly wealthy man. You know, Ted Turner has 2 million acres. acres. So it's not farmland, mostly ranch land, but, um, but I think that there's a number of different concerns that are out there and that are always going to be out there about what's going on on a national or a world scale and about different people that are um, aggressively doing things that might impact you. And I think that it's important to stay focused on what 
you are doing on your little patch of dirt. In other words, if God has called you to do something important for your family and for your community and to build those relationships or to grow healthy food or to just to show, just to live a different life and show people that there is a different way to do this. I think that if you stay focused on that, you'll be busy enough that you won't really need to worry too much about what's going on in the larger world. I'm not saying that you keep your head in the sand, but I'm saying that God has a way through his providence of looking out for those who are following his will. And there's a protection and a safety in that. And so, I mean, my, my immediate answer to that is that, you know, you can be informed, be aware, focus on the local issues in your local community yes. first. Also be aware that there's a lot of people that are trying to stir up a lot of things all the time. And you can really waste time yeah. getting upset about things that you have no control over. But if you can really create a beautiful life and a beautiful family where you are, you're going to do so much more for the world. And you're going to have, you're going to be provided for by the Lord. He's going to protect you. That's really good. I think there's a lot of understandable anxiety surrounding the topic. And that is really something we need to hone in on. Whatever we have, if it's a front yard, if it's a backyard, if it's 10 acres or 30 acres, just being as faithful with what we've been given as possible. There was a quote in the back of the book, and it brought light to the fact that there are easier ways to acquire food, cleaner ways, cheaper food, but that's not why we do it. Could you summarize as we close here in seven minutes, what has it done for your family? What, bringing it back to a personal level, why do you do it if there are cheaper ways? Yeah, you're referring to one of the essays in the back of the book about kind of a reflection on why are we working so hard when you can just go to the store and buy tomatoes for, you know, a couple dollars? Why do we put a whole season of work in for it? And um, one of the things that I learned over the course of living here and in attempting this lifestyle, and I know that you have too, because you, you come from a similar background and you're, you're out there in the grass with sheep. So (laughs) there is a fulfillment in this connectedness with the land that it's just hard to explain. It kind of has its own influence on you. And while we're here, we're working together as a family. And it's one of those rare places that I can do that, that we can actually um, put our hands together and, and, and grow things together or raise things together, take care of the land, and then enjoy the fruit of the land. I mean, all winter long, we're, we're enjoying the maple syrup that we evaporate from our own maple trees. And so there's so many aspects on this farm where, yeah, it would be cheaper if we were to go buy it from a store, but we would miss that opportunity to build these strong relationships with our children who are here with us. Yeah. Um, we homeschool, we have five children and we homeschool our children. So we make that part of their education. It's just everything that we're learning here, we're passing that on to them. Mm-hmm. And it's a, for us and as a believer, it's an opportunity to disciple our children. We get to show them the ways of God through nature, through his own creation. And I think there's no better way to illustrate uh, the providence of God and um, yeah the provision of God and how much we really depend on the Lord in, in other than in a farming context where you're completely dependent on him and you see the rhythms of nature and the rhythms of the Bible all throughout the property and all throughout the land. 
I think that's one of our downfalls is that we isolate the definition of values to dollar and cents, really. And that, that yes. could be why we're here today in a lot of ways. All right, guys, this is your last chance to get any questions in for Rory Groves, author of Durable Trades, book available at shopshepherdist.com. Make sure to tag me for your opportunity to win a copy of that book. I'm going to scan to see if there were any comments that I overlooked. Julie Brinker asks, we are meeting with our county soil and water conservation soon. Has anyone else used that resource? Have you used county resources? Sure. Yeah, we've done a number of different informational workshops, um, soil testing. Um, we call the extension if we have specific questions. It's not super frequent, but we do on occasion uh, reach out to them if we have questions that we're having trouble with, uh, whether it's raising animals or related to timber management or things like that. So county is a good resource for you. I haven't yet, yeah. but I haven't had any complex issues. Roxy. Roxy says she loves her local extension office. Mm -hmm. All right, guys, make sure to drop your contacts. Mr. Groves, where can people find you on the internet if they want to get in touch with you to see more of what you are doing? Uh, our website, thegrovestead.com, is kind of where we put everything. Um, and then we have a print newsletter that we send out quarterly. We're actually working on the next issue right now. Today we've been working on it. So that's going to go out pretty soon. You can sign up to that. It's for that. It's free. Um, and then we have an Instagram. If you want to follow more of the day to day, my wife likes to keep uh, people busy with pictures and the, the kids and different fun things going on around the farm. So that would just be at the Grovestead um, on Instagram. All right. Great, guys. You can follow me as Harmony Farms Dorpers on Instagram. But first, follow me at HarmonyFarms.blog and subscribe to my newsletter there. This has been a great meetup. Give us a thumbs up, guys, if you enjoyed this time with Mr. Groves. Thank you, everyone, for attending. This has been a wonderful time. Until next time, thank you all. Thank you. Mr. Groves. For more content surrounding small-scale regenerative farming, please visit www.harmonyfarms.blog.